Hi everybody, Mark Summers here, and today I'm going to be talking to the great J.D. Roth. We're going to discuss the emotional component of weight loss. No scientist was working on the emotional part, and in the end, it turns out, and it was a new paradigm for weight loss, that the emotional part of losing weight is 90% of the game. The art of hosting. And I still call Jamila Hunter to thank her. Yeah. Because if she didn't do that that day, I don't know if I would have gotten to where I got. And making an impact on others. When you're hosting something, there's multiple people, you gotta get everyone to kind of see eye to eye. And so a lot of business, in a way, is the same thing. So don't forget to like and subscribe to Mark Summers Unwraps. JD came up with a brilliant idea. Uh, who doesn't have a problem with losing weight? And he just took it to an extreme. And uh, as a show, I think I said it on the podcast, this thing should never go off the air because it's something we all deal with. I went to a rehearsal. I'm producing a new project, and a guy I hadn't seen in five years, I walked in the room. I didn't recognize him. He'd lost 40 pounds. And I thought, oh, my God, how'd you do that? And he said, well, I stopped eating the terrible things I was eating, and uh, I'm on these bars, and I eat one meal a day, and I exercise. And you know, he said he's had it off for four years now. And I applaud the people who can pull that off. J.D.'s got great ideas, and he's also generally the smartest person in the room, and he's generally three steps ahead of everybody else. I don't know how he thinks the way he does. I admire the hell out of him. Uh, he's probably 15 years younger than me and has had tremendous success. And um, I just often wonder how people, A, come up with as many concepts. Like right now, he's working on a show in Washington, D.C. He tells me he's retired, but he's not really. I don't think he ever can. Uh, he just keeps thinking of other ideas and going after them. And he's not afraid to pick up the phone and call whoever he needs to call. And somehow he gets through. Right now, he's talking to some people in the government that I don't know how he got to them. Uh, but he, he's that kind of a guy. And so you look back and you go, that, that's pretty cool. I'm very excited about today's show. We are unwrapping J.D. Roth. J.D. Roth and I go back. I was trying to figure out, I'm going to think it's about 35 years, okay? So let me tell you the story. I don't think I've ever told you the story. Double Dare comes out, and it's, it's, you know, bigger than life at the time. There were no kids' game shows, and we sort of broke the ice. I'm checking into the Park Meridian in New York City when it used to be the hotel where all the celebrities and all the uh, yeah. entertainment people would stay. And there's two Warner Brothers executives in front of me. I recognize them. They have no idea that I'm standing behind them. And this is what I hear. Yeah, man, we're launching this massive show. What is it? It's Double Dare with a budget is what they... <laughs> That's an awesome line. Yeah. Because when we started... <laughs> We, we did the first 65 episodes for $9,000 an episode. MTV oh, did not want to spend any money. Nickelodeon was owned by yeah. MTV and, and uh, Viacom had just taken them over. I guess Warner Amex had them before that. And um, they didn't want to shoot it in New York, and they didn't have a lot of faith in it. So we shot at WHYY in Philadelphia, kind of your old stomping grounds. Yeah. And it got to 9000 bucks an episode. Well, by the time we got into syndication and the copycat show started... We were doing 50000 bucks an episode, which in 1990 was, I guess, a lot. And they were going nuts that why were we spending so much money when, when you realize how much people spend now and you just kind of laugh about Which I that. think the Funhouse year one was over a million dollars by itself. Oh, I bet it was. Yeah. Because the difference – tell me if you agree with this or not. I'm not a big fan of copycat programming, but that's the way our industry works. So when I was a kid, there was a show called Video Village. There was a kid's game show. Monty Hall was the host, as a matter of fact. Um, and so fast forward the tape. Nickelodeon does research and finds out <clears throat> kids are living vicariously through their parents watching Price is Right but don't have their own game show. So Nick comes up with this thing, and uh, next thing we know, you guys go on the air. 
the reason I always thought Nickelodeon versus Disney worked was because we had kids with pimples and uh, bad hair, and Disney, everybody looked like a shiny new penny. Right. Okay, Princess. You guys had this enormous set, okay, with two cheerleaders, beautifully lit on a stage that looked like it was from the Hollywood Palace. It was a football field. It, it, it was massive, mm-hmm. right? And yes, it was Double Dare with a budget. Did you love the game initially? So, okay, so... I'm barely 20 years old. Right. And I'm at USC in the dramatic arts uh, department, you know, acting. I had been acting since I was 11. I'd been a working actor in New York. Let's go back and talk about that for a second. So I read something about you auditioned and, and uh, was it Ricky Lake and Sarah yeah. Jessica Parker? I impersonated my dad's voice to get an audition. <laughs> uh, we lived almost two hours from New York. I had, as a family, we had never even been to New York at this point. Really? Ever. Not even for a vacation. Were you in New Jersey? Uh, yeah. Uh, right outside of, of Philly. Okay. And so my, I, I think my parents were so sick of hearing about this. They were like, listen, we're going to take you, and then you're not going to get it, and that's going to be the end of this. And so they took me, and I didn't realize you had to sing a song. So I didn't know that most people, professionals, would bring sheet music, mm. and they would have, and there's a piano player there. So I get to the building, and there's a line around the building. I mean, literally hundreds of kids. You know, I could see my mom and dad, the eye rolling, but they were rooting me on and they were there to support. So I had brought a Billy Joel tape to sing Honesty. I, I thought you just sang with someone. I really didn't know. Oh my. And I think I looked like Opie. You know, I was, I was 11. <laughs> I looked eight, you know? And so by the time I got to the front of the line and I walked in and they said, where's your sheet music? And I said, like, sheet? I go here. I was an eight, you know, an eight. Did you hand him a cassette? Yeah, cassette tape. I'm like, here you go. So they put that in, and I, and I think they were so taken by oh my. this kid who looked eight with red hair and freckles singing Honesty with Billy Joel. Anyway, five people got this Sunday showcase, and it was Sarah Jessica Parker and Ricky Lake and me and Martha Byrne, who went on to be you know, a huge soap star 25, 30 years. What was the show? Emmys. It was like a Sunday showcase where you'd sing songs. And only in New York, or was it? Sing- only in New York, and it was great because how I found it, the club was called Something Different. Oh, my. And so I still remember it to this day, the first time I was there with that gang all together. And you'd sing a group number, and then you'd sing individual numbers, and they'd serve desserts and stuff. And, and in my first year, I, well, I got an agent after that. What did you do on the show? Um, sang. Sang songs. I had never sang anything but Happy Birthday. Oh, my God. I was not a singer. I'm still not right. a singer. But you did you know? that. But I did that, yeah. And, and, and my first year, I go on auditions. I remember, like, vividly, even though I'm 55 now, I was 11 then. I remember vividly my dad sitting me down and saying, hey, listen, the tickets to New York are expensive. It's a bus ride back and forth. You know, your mom needs to go with you. I'm going to give you $1,000. When you run out of money, that's it. It's over. And I, I remember thinking, how is it possible you could run out? Rush, yeah, I'm $1,000? It's like a million dollars, right? Never running out. And um, I set a record in New York, which I guess I understand it. It stands today. It stands today mostly because there's no national commercials anymore. But I did 22 national commercials my what? first year. I made more than my father, who owned his own <laughs> law firm. And I, now, again, I didn't know it at the time. This was told to me many years later. What commercials did you do? There, Mark, it wasn't a question when a big sports event or a TV show would go to commercial if I was going to be in one, our family would bet on how many in the break I would be in. Sometimes I was in all three. And that's when they were paying residuals instead of buyouts. It it was, again, I got a lot of mail. I had no idea why. When I went, I was getting ready to go to college. (laughs) My dad said, I didn't want to go to college. I said, I don't need it. I'm an actor. I'm going to go act. And my dad said, what if I told you you could go to college on interest? 
You could pay for your college on interest. It wouldn't cost you a dime. And I was like, all right. And then when I got to USC, my only focus was getting out. I wanted to get to Hollywood. Yeah. And now I needed to go to school because I have a Jewish mom. And then the, <laughs> the only way to get out was to get a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I literally went from my dorm room at USC to the front cover of Teen Beat in a month. I mean, I don't know if you know, Funhouse was only picked up for 22 episodes. Yeah. By the time the third episode aired, they picked up 195. You know, I had the same it, thing where they picked us up. For, and you were shooting just uh, constantly. I, it was great. We were still shooting in Philly. And I left in January and got home in May because we just shot constantly. Yeah. So I was, so you were on, which, which magazine were you in? Tiger. I think it was Teen Beat. Teen Beat, okay. But you were 19 or 20. That made yeah. sense. I was in Tiger Beat and I was right. like 40. Yeah. It made no sense whatsoever, yeah. but that's what they used to do. They used to cover those stories. It also said you were on Star Search. What'd you do on Star I Search? I was before Funhouse. I was, you know, in my little town and auditioning and things like that. And Star Search had an acting competition. It yes. was acting, singing, comedians. And so I submitted myself as an actor and I got chosen. Okay. Now, did you do it in Hollywood? I did. Okay. I was doing the warm-ups on that show. No way. Yeah. I was looking at that, I'm going, what the hell were you doing on this? Yeah, I was the warm-up announcer on Star Search for the entire run. Oh, my God. So I, I'm sure you remember then. Tony Danza was my star. Oh, my he God. He was like the guest star. Yep. And I remember going on and... Back then, you know, you didn't gang shoot uh, no. that show. So you do one a week. So if you win... You got to wait another week to come back. I'm on Sunset Boulevard my in the Marriott, <laughs> like like a rock star. Oh, my God. You know what God. I mean? I think I was 14 or 15 years old, and I made it all the way to the finals. Did you um, really? Yeah, and I, I, I sadly lost in the finals, and I thought my career was over. Oh, my God. No, the people who didn't win on Star Search actually did better than the people who yeah. actually won, you know? Sinbad was doing the comedy in my episode. So, I mean, think about that. And Amy Dolan's, Mickey Dolan's daughter, was the female that was really? in the scene with me. So she was competing against other females. I was competing against oh other males. And yeah. Three stars! Yeah. Oh, and he had a drink with like 18 ice cubes <laughs> in it just it. under the, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, great that memories is... of that. Oh. And I, that was the first time. So during the week, I would go to the studios... And auditioned for shows, and it was my first taste of, of Hollywood, where you'd see the cast of your favorite show having a catch on the lawn during lunch as you walked the Paramount lot. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I just, I, I could not believe what I saw. But here's, you know, I, I, I'm putting this segment together for us today, and I'm thinking how similar and how different we are. Okay, when I came out of the womb, I got entranced with <clears throat> variety television, and I was watching Ed Sullivan long before your time, uh, and then I got obsessed with Johnny Carson. And so I wanted to host television shows. I know that there's a line in your family that, you know, you'd open the refrigerator and do five minutes, <laughs> yeah. and you would talk to the mailman or anybody, anybody who came by. Anyone. But was hosting your goal? I think it was a, a subconscious thing. Consciously, it was, I'm going to be on a sitcom. I'm going to be Michael J. Fox. Mm. You know, and I think that, for me, was kind of the goal. I think, yeah, did I memorize host lines and game shows because it was so repetitive? Mm -hmm. I was like, wait a second, they're saying the same thing over and I've never tried to answer the puzzles. Everyone, my, I remember my sisters and my, Shh, quiet, we're trying to figure out the puzzle. And I'm saying the lines with Pat Sajak. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. 10 seconds. Right. So I don't think it was a conscious thing. I think ultimately I knew that I was better at playing me. Than I was playing somebody See, else. See, this is, I say this all the time. Um, I, I was taking acting classes out here and I sucked. I knew I couldn't act, but I knew I could be me. So uh, we may edit this next part out, but I may have told this before, but 
Everything you just said is how I ended up getting Double Dare. They had auditioned a thousand people in New York, didn't like anybody, came to LA. I was the first guy to audition. I'll cut this story really short. Um, I get called back and I find out that they can't figure out, there's me and one other guy, who's best with kids? Because all the auditions were with grownups playing the party kids. Right. So I suggested to them, why don't you put us in a studio with kids and let the best man win? So they flew me and this other person out to New York and they put us in a studio with kids. And that was on a Monday. And by Wednesday, I got the phone call that I got the job. And I said to him, how did I get the job? You auditioned 2,000 people. And they said, well, quite honestly, you were both the same. But at the end of his audition, he looked in the camera and said, is that it or you guys want me to do something else? And I said, we'll be back with more Double Dare right after this. And because I threw it to commercial, they said that was more professional and I got the job. So you and I were doing the same okay. stuff. So that's crazy. So th in a similar way, there were seven callbacks for Funhouse. Mm -hmm. Seven. I would get to the audition two hours early. As superstitious as I was, I'd wait so I could park my car in the same spot. <laughs> Okay, that's how bad I wanted it. That's funny. And so I would get there ahead of time, park in the same spot, go over the copy, and I realized in that seventh callback, which we were going to have real kids with us, I needed like a tagline. Mm -hmm. I needed something that they'd remember. And I remember sitting in my car and writing out like seven or eight taglines. And the one that stuck that I brought into the audition, which is why they said I got it, which is very similar, is I hope your house is a fun house. And, and it so, turned your life around. And maybe that, that little bit of professionalism, like yep. you said, that ability broadcaster style to know that you need something to send them away with, which ended up, I don't know, almost 500 episodes we did. I said that at the end of every episode. Yep. So it stuck. Maybe that is what they're looking for if in the end, it's kind of what got so us weird that you there. and I did. What's, what's your idea of a good host? Uh, uh, a great listener who knows when to move on. And so I, you got to take ownership of the space. I can't stand when I watch podcasts and they let the guest drone on for seven minutes mm -hmm. because they're trying to be polite. Mm. You can't, you just can't always be polite. No. Yeah. It's just like when, when you go over to someone's house for dinner, it's their house. So you let them kind of control the conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, when we host, you're in our house. Yeah. So it's my turn to conduct the conversation and know when we should stop and know when we should move forward. So it's like being a good traffic cop. That's in, what's in so funny. We have two hosts doing the show, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're hosting each other. But <laughs> I'm at your dinner table. <laughs> um, interesting that you say that because I was a, my first job was writing Truth or Consequences for Bob Barker the last year he hosted it. And he used to say to me, uh, a good host is a listener, number one. And number two, you don't need to be funny every day. If you get a joke in on Monday and Thursday, that's enough. But if you make the contestants the stars, then you're going to have a career. And he and I had Absolutely. the same love, which was Jack Benny. Jack Benny made everybody around him the stars, and he just threw in some stuff. Everybody knew it was the Jack Benny show, but he made everybody else look good. And that's what Bob did for all those years on, on Price. And that's what I tried to do on Double Dare is make the kids the celebrities as opposed to it, it wasn't about me. It's why most stand-up comics suck as uh, uh, hosts because they want to wanted to be about them and I knew it wasn't about me and you knew it wasn't about you it was about right, but the you, kids in a way it was more difficult because you did have stand up chops yeah so the design of how to write a joke how to set it up how to deliver it is a muscle that you flexed right. and then you had to figure out a way to undo it yeah and not allow it to flex. So in a lot of ways, it might have been more difficult. I, I didn't have much in my way, in my path. I wasn't a comic. You know, I wasn't a writer. I was just kind of me. I was just having fun and being in the moment. I think my expertise was uh, producing in real time. Yeah, and that's what it comes down to, and we're going to get to that. I have 400 I didn't know I was here. a producer. You know what I mean? <laughs> but you, you kind of learn that 
muscle. But you did it really young. So fast forward the tape to a certain extent. You and I, you did your thing. I did my thing. We sort of bumped into each other. I don't remember the first time we ever met face to face. I can't put those together. But uh, here's what happened. I'm going to tell you something today that you didn't know. Um, we we live next to a gentleman by the name of Dennis Miller, who you all know from NBC and uh, Saturday Night Live and various other things. And we have great lunches and we just laugh our asses. The old guy off. lunch. <laughs> it really is. We have so much fun. And so one day he says, uh, I surprised you. I brought a friend. And so you come around the corner. Okay, yeah. now, what you didn't know was I was in a car accident uh, now about 10 years ago. And I broke every bone in my face. And I have a problem with uh, memory. Um, anything that sort of happened before a period of time, I have no recollection of. Okay. So when he said, I brought a friend and you came around the corner, I had no idea who the hell you were. Okay. I, I was saying to oh, myself, covered it well. Oh, I said, Dear God, somebody help me here. And we hugged each other and you sat down. And about 15 minutes later, after I heard your voice, I put it together and I knew huh. it was you. Okay. Huh. So now let's talk about this. this well, is, it also had been a lot of years. This is going to be a therapy session in many ways. It hmm. was a lot of years, but we hadn't talked to each other in about 10 years. That's right. And do you remember why? I do. Okay. You and I had a disagreement. And um, I said unkind words, which I want to apologize to you right now. I should have a long time ago. And you came back and hit me with a couple of things that threw me off. And so we kind of signed off on each other. That was, uh, I was living in Philly. You were here. I'm so, I thought it was more than 10 years ago. But. May have been. Might have been. Uh, I'm trying to, yeah, might have been at this point. So we hadn't talked, and then I hadn't seen you, and then I put it together. Okay, now we're having lunch all the time, and we're hanging out. Yeah. Um, and so, you know. I think you never know. I've As I've gotten older, mm -hmm. I was a very competitive human being, um, maybe the most competitive human being I knew. But I think as I've softened and gotten older, I realize when I look back on things, you don't know what someone's going through. No. You don't know what's going on you in their life. You think you do. Right. You don't, know, you don't know the behind the scenes. And so when somebody acts out, the quickest thing to do is to react. Oh, yeah. And I think now that I've gotten older and wiser and had kids and my kids are growing up, I think I've, I've been able to take a step back and go, you know what? The forgiveness... Like, yeah. is this word everyone talks about, but no one actually really does it? Well, they don't. And and here's the other thing. Um, I react violently at times, not to be mean or angry, but that's just kind of my reaction. So there's a, a an executive uh, at Food Network then. His name uh, Brian Lando. Brian Lando is a brilliant kid. He's 40 years old, maybe. Um, I used to drive him and my son to soccer practice. So I've known him since he was wow. that that old. And he was an actor in town doing a lot of stuff. And he came to me one day and said, uh, I want to work for a network. Okay, so fast forward the tape. I got him his first job at Food Network. And then he became senior VP of programming production, kicking ass and taking names. He was overseeing both dinner and restaurant impossible when I was exec producing. And I used to get in knockdown, drag out screaming matches with him about why you're wrong and why I disagree with what the hell you're saying. And, and you know, people have this thing about don't yell at the executives. I always did. Did it make the show better? Uh, well, his his words or mine? Well, when you won an argument or a point, did it make the show noticeably yes. different and better? Here was my point. We did a reality show, and I never wanted to fake anything. Everything had to be real. If anybody on my set came up with something that wasn't real, I told them they would be fired on the spot. Okay. Well, there was a period when the network wanted me to start making stuff up, and I refused to do it. But 
Brian and I would get into screaming matches, and then I'd say to him, you want to go to lunch? And he'd say to me, I don't get you. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you're screaming at me. You're telling me I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And now you want to go to lunch? I went, yeah, that was just business. That's just bullshit. Let's just go to lunch, you know? And to this day, he makes fun of me. He goes, how do you do that? And I said, one has nothing to do with the other. I love you. I think you're incredibly talented. I think you're great at what you do. I can get into an argument with you. Now, Not every executive would take that. There are some executives who still don't talk to me because I would get into those shouting matches and they would say you're disrespectful. And But now that I've been spending time with you, I realize, too, you don't, you don't have a filter. No. And you're not afraid of the consequences. And so, yeah. right, so it's not that you don't think before you speak. No. I actually think you do a lot of thinking. But you won't. You're you have an opinion, and mm-hmm. you're not afraid to give it. No. And if there's consequences, then there's consequences. Yeah, it's like that, it's easier when you have money almost, in the bank, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I mean, I guess it's a form of integrity. This is how what you believe, and this is what you're going to stick to, and I and I can respect that. Plus, I'm old school. You know, uh, I had an executive tell me I needed to care a little less, and I said I don't know how to do that. And yeah. they said, well, you, you're you're just too focused on the show. You care if you to... cared less, you'd be an executive. Well, <laughs> That's what you should have said. <laughs> that, that was the line I needed, man. Where were you when I needed you? hundred percent, you know? So, you know, and how did you feel about reality? Because you did Bar Rescue and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. I mean, did, did you guys, you know, make stuff up along the way? My philosophy was always, if you create, I used to call it a snake. If you put the best snake in the room, mm. all you have to do is long lens approach it. So, but to put a snake in the room, you have to come up with a really great, con- the snake is the concept. Mm-hmm. It's the POV. Mm. You know, um, in Biggest Loser, it's I lost something I don't think I can ever get back. Mm-hmm. I might die, mm. right? Th- those are big consequences. Huge. In Bar Rescue, I um, I mortgaged my house. I gave everything to this place, and I may lose it and lose everything and end up in my mother's basement. Mm-hmm. That, that's major. So the only concept was leave people better off than how you found them and go find people who are in dire need of something. And if you do, you don't have to make anything up. When you say to a grown man who's 400 pounds who can't get out of a chair, hey, what happened? It turns out that... Nobody is hungry enough to eat themselves to 400 pounds. So what you perceive as hunger pain is really emotional pain. Well, now I don't have to do much. You just have to back off and ask the right questions. Yeah. And then real shit happens. <laughs> and when the real stuff happens, yeah. then you don't have to get lost in that. I mean, I I am not a fan of unscripted television, even I though I made my ca- career it. making it. Yeah. It's not a, I think I can see how the sausage is made a little too much. And so I don't like a lot of what I see. But I never wanted to do it. I fell into it. You wanted to do this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think when I see someone get it right, it hits me in that spot. Like When you're like, oh, man, I wish I thought of that. What's the show that you wish you would have thought of? I would say recently, and you're talking unscripted. Yeah. I would say recently it would be um, Full Swing on Netflix, Mm. uh, the golf Mm -hmm. show. And I think the reason I like it is they shot at one period of time and they shot everything. And then they reconstructed each individual story as a character. So each episode is a character and the characters are very unique. There's the one episode where it's a suffering golfer. It's a guy who thinks just like I do on the course. Like I, I I don't even belong on the, you know, on the grass. What am I doing here? And he, at that level, he's having the same feeling. It's the small town story of the guy who comes from a little tiny nothing town in England. He shouldn't have been anything but, you know, a teacher. And look what And now happened. he wins the U.S. Open. Yep. It's the smug dude who always <laughs> thought he was the best, and he's going to rub it right in your face. And so I love the individual stories of character. That is something I think is, is a really well-told story. I'm a lot like you, knowing you better now. When I get to a red light and I look at the car next to me, I'm like, 
that guy's got a story. Like, I wonder what that guy's story is. Yeah, everybody's got one. Why He's is this car dig. loaded full of stuff? And what? There's something going on there. Like, I want to know. Yeah. And um, that's well, you're a great storyteller. When I was talking to our producers, uh, they said, you know, tell me a little bit about JD. I said he should be a motivational speaker. <laughs> I mean, uh, and I think you can hear this now. You have definite points of view, and yeah. it's uh, colored and influenced the programming that you've done. Now being 55, and I would say somewhat you know, retired or lean, half in, half out kind of thing. Right. When I look back, the thing, have you said, if you could produce one more show or you could host one more show, which one would you want to do? And I would say host every day of the week. Like, yeah. That would be an easy, and there's something about yeah, it's not easy. being a point guard, you know, for your basketball team and knowing that the big guy may be a little insecure and you got to make him feel good. It's the no look pass. It's knowing who's behind you. Mm. It's knowing when it's time to get to that commercial. It's looking over and seeing two, you know, people arguing off camera. So you know something's going on. You dissect it in the real time and then solve the problem. It's But as a host, you're a producer if you're a good host. 100%. I worked with guys who, you know, this one host who will remain nameless couldn't pronounce Chuck the- Willery? <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. Don't talk about Chuck like that. He's the nicest guy. <laughs> oh, man. He's going to get me in trouble here. Uh, he couldn't pronounce the word, and it wasn't Chuck, uh, guacamole. So we would write it in the questions every week, and he would say guacamole. And it used to drive us insane that this guy, week after week after week, we would do this. And same thing back in the day when <laughs> working for Jack Berry. And, you know, this is early 70s, and we'd always write questions like, uh, what planet is bigger than Uranus? Because we'd love to hear <laughs> on national TV until the network caught on and said, you know, stop with the Uranus stuff already, you know. Um, and it, it was just, it was fun stuff. And those old school guys, I didn't think produced as much as, you know, with all due respect, guys like you and me. They were, they were... What Dick said. They were meat puppets. Yeah. I never heard and, that term. And there's nothing bad about that. No. Like, hey, it's it's a great life and you're polished and you look good and you read the cards. But I'll tell you what, I've worked with some of the hosts you're talking about. Mm. Who shall go nameless? Yeah. Chuck Woolery. And uh <laughs> I'm kidding. I love Chuck. <laughs> and if it's not on the card, it they ain't can't getting do read. It. Oh my god, I know. That's it. It's gotta be on the card. And it, if you even shorten something on the card, they're gonna read the shortened version, not even the full word. Yep. So that was a multi-decade moment in television where that was their job is yep. to be set dressing. Well, there were look hosts. Good and that was great voice. Well, when I came out here, that's what I want. You could be a. I want to be a game show host. You can't do that now because you have to be a movie star, hundred percent. You know, to to do that kind of stuff. Guys like us could never get a job today nope. if we were just coming out doing this stuff. In fact, most of the hosts that I work with. They have an earpiece, and 80% of what's coming out of their mouth is coming out of my mouth first. Exactly. And so once, because they have to learn the muscle too. They don't know it. And they not, don't have to know it anymore. That's the problem. That's true. I mean, I you I know you must have worked with Woody Frazier at one point uh, of your life, and uh, I was hosting a show called The Home Show, fill in for Gary Collins, and he demanded that we wear IFBs. But when I would have the IFB in my ear, he'd say, hey, Mark, look to your right. There's a woman in the front row who's got short skirt. And you know, and he would try to distract me while I was doing a live television show. So I used to take the thing out of my yeah. ear and just drop it and you know, go to hell with it. But there, the host producer types don't really exist that much anymore. No, no, because they want following. Yeah. So you got to have three million Instagram and you got to have five million, yeah. you know? And so, and there are people who do care very much. Um, I worked with a host recently on a show that I created called Karma, mm -hmm. uh, Michelle Kahari. And I never met, she was a social media, you know, each week she has an, an episode, she has a few million followers, she does amazing stuff. She takes on the ch this challenge, whatever the challenge is, and she really jumps into it. And she looked at hosting that way too. Really? And she really wanted to dissect it and really learn 
old school style. What it was. So we did like a full, you know, weekend training and she really worked her ass off. And I hadn't worked with anyone who cared that much. Most celebrity or social media, they just want to get on there and do their thing. They don't want to really learn. And she really did want to learn. I did a show recently, can't be named. Uh, and the host I was exec producing refused to rehearse. And it's like, I finally called this person up and I said, you're going to look like an idiot on television if you don't. And her management came to me and yelled at me and said, you know, look, you can you can have them for a day. And I said, okay, they're going to look like shit. Okay. Wow. And, but that's the way because agents and managers, and it's all about social media. How many hits do you have? You know, 100%. you're an influencer. You got 30 million people, you know, yep. read between the lines. Um, anyway, uh, the first show that you sold was? I became the youngest executive producer in NBC's history when I sold a show, a dating show. Um, and it was basically a brother and sister come on and the brother picks the sister's date and the sister picks the brother's date. And called? Like young teenagers, you know what I mean? It's called Double Up. Okay. And uh, and in fact- uh, one Prime of the, time? Uh, no, Saturday morning right after Saved by the Bell. Oh my God, great. And uh, great lead in. And uh, a couple of the contestants went on to be pretty big stars. Um, Brittany Murphy was on the show. Mm. Uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt was on the show. Really? And, and some others. And they were dynamite. But- the show worked very well in the ratings. And then about seven or eight episodes in, in Time Magazine was a picture of me. And again, at the time I'm 22 or whatever, but I look 15. And it said, should this kid be telling you when your kid should date? And the parent groups got involved. And, <coughs> Seriously? Uh, yeah. And literally killed the show. You know, NBC, Saturday morning. Should this you know, Really? Yeah. I mean, at different times, right? You're talking about- That's insane. Early 90s. And so the show was canceled for that reason? Yeah. Yeah, we did 13, <coughs> and it was doing very well, and uh, and then it was over. I, In fact, there's a poster that exists inside NBC to this day that is me and one of the uh, guys from uh, Saved by the Bell back-to-back, like, you know, arms oh. cut off, you know, and it's like yeah, the boys of summer. Oh, my. You know, yeah. There's one show, that you're going to have to answer a question for me, and I can't remember the name of it, uh, but you could take the date or take the million bucks. What was it called? Oh, that was so great. I'm going to give you a quick story about the show. Okay. I did a show called Endurance, which was on for seven seasons. It was nominated for a bunch of Emmys. I, I was nominated for host multiple times and lost to Elmo each time, <laughs> which at least it was another redhead. I have so. a joke, but we'll shut this place down. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. Shocking. So, okay. So Endurance was great. NBC at, called, this is back when you only had DVDs, and asked if I would send them the DVDs for the show. And it was NBC primetime. I'm thinking like, why, would they, why do they want to see it? You know, so I, again, going back to my New York days, trying to scheme, I was like, all right, well, I'll send them the DVDs without the finale, thinking that if they watch them. If they really watch them and don't say they just They're going to love the show. They're going to call and ask, where's where's the finale? Were you also trying to screw with them, though? Yes. Yeah, okay. Of course. Yeah, yeah. A couple weeks go by, I get a call from an assistant. Hey, uh, you you didn't never sent the finale. Uh, So they did look. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I will hand deliver the finale if you'll give me a meeting. Mm. Because guys like me, like we were, what I refer to as the second wave. Mm. Things worked in prime time. They do a kid's version. I was, okay, let JD do it. He's the kid's guy. But I wanted to be more than that, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just didn't know how. So they took a meeting with me. And during the meeting, one of the executives says, I I think you should give it to him. And then they start talking back and forth. The next thing you know, they had bought a title to a show. They had no format. They were doing a bake-off. They were giving three companies five grand to go come up with a concept and come back and pitch it. Okay. Uh, I didn't, I mean, I did one show. It was successful, but you know, all right, fine. So they gave that to me and the show, the title that they bought was Around the World in 80 Dates. Oh, okay, cute. Okay. 
So I go back. I'm literally ripping pieces of paper with this guy, Todd Nelson, who we were on the road with together. And I'm like, well, okay, if one plane flies and two guys are on it, we get to a country. We come up with this format. A couple weeks later, we go back in. Room full of NBC executives. I'm like the low man on the totem pole, right? The other two are like real companies with primetime shows. So you hadn't in. started your company yet? No, I mean, I had one show. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a company yet. And I go in, I pitch, and you know, like, you know me. Like, I'm like, okay, we get the plane. And I, who wants a Michael Jackson pin? And, uh, and so there's silence after the pitch. And I was like, oh, my God, did, did I just read the room completely wrong? Total silence. Like, you could hear a pin drop. And all of a sudden, an executive in the room says, stands up, hits her hand on the desk and says, I think he can do it. Who was that executive? And, and they and they gave me a, a million dollars an episode. I w you and I weren't working for a million dollars for our whole series. No, ever. Jamila Hunter. Oh, I remember Jamila Hunter. And I still call Jamila Hunter to thank her. Yeah. Because if she didn't do that that day, I don't know if I would have gotten to where I got. Oh so the answer to your question is, I get this show. We do a scout, 30 people around the world. The scout was millions of dollars. We're going this country, that country. We get back during the production, 9-11 happened. Oh. And I remember sitting in my office and CNN was on and on the ticker it said NBC cancels around the world in 80 dates because they didn't want an American flag on a plane flying from Thailand to oh Sweden. My. And to, that's how you found out. And that's how I found out. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I've already cast it. I got bachelors and girls and uh, planes and hotels. And I'm like, I, I, there's no way... I can let this go. And so my philosophy has always been like, look at every obstacle as an inspiration. Mm. So I thought, okay, I got to gotta create a show fast. Yeah. So I came up with uh, this show, which was for love or money. Two days later, I called the executive at NBC at home and I said, I got an idea. And it's 20 girls come on. The guy doesn't. <laughs> 20 girls come on. The guy doesn't know it. But in the end, the girl that he picks gets a million dollars. And then he's going to have to choose. She's going to have to choose between love or money. Right. She can't have both. And I remember, again, silence on the phone. Jeff Gaspin was his name. Oh, I still have dinner sure. with Jeff. The best. And he goes, great, you can start Monday. And so I took the bachelor I never had that this. we had. I took the girls. All I needed was a house. And we just pivot. And we went into For Love or Money, which ended up being the number one show in summer and top 10 show for the year. Here's what I didn't understand. Initially, you didn't know it was for the date or the money. But after that's exposed, how do you do that? So it, the guy never knew the girls were playing for money. They had no idea. So they could never be alone with a guy without someone from production. But hadn't they watched this on television by the well, time? you're talking about season four? Yes. So season one, we had two groups Right, so they had no idea. They didn't so know what was going on. the first two seasons, it was fine. Okay, then what? The problem was season three and four, and then it was, well, he doesn't know, and she knows, and she knows, but he doesn't, and it became like some- Too confusing. Yeah, it became a disaster. Yeah, because was, I was always wondering about that, like how- yeah. and, Well, know? the interesting thing was at the end of the first season, uh, he chooses, it's really sort of a good and evil kind of thing in the end. Yeah. This most innocent girl who would do never take money in her life, and the girl who you know is definitely taking the money. He picks the girl. He's in this white dinner jacket. And she says, listen, I'm sorry, I have to explain something. I've been playing this game. She says, I've been playing for a million dollars. And now I found out that I can't have the money and you. I have to choose one or the other. And the guy looks at her. I mean, 30 million people watch the finale during summer. Yeah, you know what the hut levels sure. are like, right? So he says, well, you're, you're not going to take the money, are you? 
And she's like, uh, she pulls out the check and she says, yes, I'm taking the million dollars. And this guy epically walk the gates of the Beverly Hills mansion open and he, he walks, <laughs> walks out away. and she's been a millionaire for 20 minutes. And I know I have another group of people that are in already. And do I want to just do this, the same thing? And the show was airing at the same time. Oh my. Almost. It was like a week behind, two weeks behind. So she goes in the dressing room. She's celebrating. She's just got this million dollars. I'm like, this is amazing. I'm like, well, she's like, well, of course I took the money. What do you, what? I go, well, you, you think that you could convince a guy not to take the money? And it dawned on me in that moment, Good. literally in the room. Oh my God. Season two is double or nothing. And I said, would you be willing to do it again, to do it for double or nothing? Oh my. And I'm not kidding. Her name was Aaron. I, Aaron Brody. I'd never forget her. She took the check and she ripped it in half and pushed it across the table and she said game on and I called Jeff Gaspin and I said I got season two and did she uh, take the money the amazing part is she dismantled us so right so uh. the, she basically took every guy that was poor and eliminated him right away right and then she kind of fell for this one guy who kind of was rich and thought well he's, he's not going to take the money you know what I mean so in the end it comes down to two guys she says and I pick you and the guy says, oh, my God. And he picks her up and embraces her and hugs her and kisses her. And he says, I got something to tell you. I've been playing this game. Which, of course, she knows. She, she just played the game. Yeah. He's like, uh, I, I've been playing this game for a million dollars. And the L of gi giant tear falls out of her eye. And now I have to choose between love or money. And and she's beautiful, right? And she's like, but you're, you're going to choose. Now, they've been on five dates, Mark. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And he says, well. A million dollars is a lot of money. Like, I'm holding a million dollars. I'm a millionaire. She's like, you're going to take the money? And as she kind of looks down, he rips the check up like confetti and th you can't write this stuff. No. Right? I'm, I'm doing real. a tap dance in the back. Throws the check up in the air in pieces. All the pieces come down. He says, of course I'm taking you. They embrace. They kiss. Now she goes, I got something I got to tell oh you. Oh, my God. I played this game. And I took the million. And I gave the million up for two million. And now I have to decide whether to take oh the two God. million. And what did she do? She took the two million bucks. She took the two million dollars. Yep. She oh took man, and she... they ended up dating and living together post the show. She for was playing you multiple guys. years. A hundred percent. Yeah. 100%. We have a line as uh, I'm sure you've heard contestants will screw you every time. And you know, when you're doing game shows, they find out ways to cheat. I mean, you have to watch. And so that yeah. that woman figured out a way. Although sometimes they figure out ways to beat you and it's great television. Yeah. Like um not often though. Not often. But on on Biggest Loser in the early days, we didn't know what the challenges were. Todd and I created challenges for Funhouse and on the road. And so we would just come up with the challenge that day. Mm. And so we're driving season one. We're driving, you know, on the way to, to campus to, to do a challenge. We got a hundred people on staff waiting. We don't know what the challenge is. So we say, well, we're going to stop at Ralph's. So we walk into Ralph's and there's cupcakes there and like tons of cupcakes. So we say to the guy, how many cupcakes do you have? It's like, oh, we have about 200 cupcakes. We'll take them all. So my business partner at the time had like a SUV. It, the smell of sugar was so strong. We loaded all 200 in there. We stopped at another Vons on the, <laughs> on the way, got 200. So we had 500 cupcakes in the car. We got to set. We put the cupcakes in a pyramid from the floor all the way to the ceiling. And, and we basically put a note in the room. So when all the overweight people who hadn't eaten in many weeks walked into the room, it said simply, whoever eats the most cupcakes in an hour can spend 24 hours with their family. Now, at this point, they have been away from their family for a couple months, right? So now you and I, being producers, would think, okay, here's what's going to happen. 
someone's going to go rogue. Yeah. They're going to eat 20 cupcakes. Of course. And they're going to win. They beat us that day. And it was the most beautiful moment because it showed them changing. Mm. It showed them taking ownership of their life. And here's what they did. They each put their name in a hat. They pulled one name out of the hat. That guy took one bite of a cupcake and that guy won. Oh my. And I thought, oh, this is when you're so happy that a moment like that happened, that they beat you at your own game. But the magic of unscripted is I don't know what's going to happen. So when they want to shoot a budget and a schedule and I want to shoot story, we lock heads together. Yeah. And there's only so many years you can do that until you're like, ah, either you got too much money in the bank or you run out of the enthusiasm for it. I still love making stuff. I just don't love the fact that I'm not allowed to make this stuff no, anymore. No, it's different. So the biggest hit you had is Biggest Loser. It's pretty big. <laughs> you think? How many it was, years? It was life-changing. 18 seasons, 180-some countries. It might have been life-changing for you, but it was more life-changing for the people who were on that show. Yeah, and I mean, think about it. I, I, this, the way the story goes, like that pitch was to Jeff Gaspin. I had a hit on his air, mm -hmm. right? And so we pitched this format, Biggest Loser, and he leans over and he and says, how much weight do you think they can lose? I'm like, okay, it's eight, nine, ten episodes, right? So it's eight, nine, ten weeks. So I don't, I never lost a weight in my life. So I lean over and I say, a hundred pounds. Mm -hmm. He's like, a hundred pounds. Hmm. He's like, if they can lose a hundred pounds, you got yourself a deal. Great, you got yourself a deal. Wow. I go back and I start <laughs> doing the math, and I'm like, oh, sh that's like a pound a day. Yeah, you can't do it. I'm like, so I start calling weight loss experts around the country. How much can you lose a week? They say one to two pounds. Click. I'd hang up on that guy. Call the next guy who's going to send sell me some Michael Jackson pins. <laughs> how, how much can they lose? Oh, one to two pounds. I click, 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 click. This point, I've already cast. We've built the gym. We've got you know we've got it Where all was set that up. Gym? It was in Malibu. Okay. Yeah, and um, up in in the canyon. And so finally, I I'll tell you what I did is I said to Jeff, Hey, it turns out they can only lose one to two pounds a week. And he laughs about this now, but he leaned in and he says, it turns out if they only lose one to two pounds a week, you're never going to work at this network again. Is that what he said? Yeah. He, Jeff was an intense guy. You I know guess. what I mean? Yeah. And I was a child actor. All I want to do is please. Mm -hmm. who, who can I take direction from? You know? So I went back and I pulled all of the overweight people in a room on day one. And I said, here's what I promised. And I I'm going to love the weight off of you. And they laughed at me. I said, I'm going to be in the gym on the treadmill next to you. I'm going to be evangelical. I'm going to be screaming from the mountaintops. If I got to move your feet on the pedals for you, I'm going to do it. I said, all the experts do is calories in, calories out, energy. What's the deficit? That's how you lose weight. 3,500 calories to a pound. What's your deficit? I said, I don't think that's true. I think there's more to it. I think there's an emotional component. And when you started digging on the emotional component, you realize that you have to have a breakdown to get a breakthrough. Mm. And when they would have a breakdown, the breakthrough would be on the scale every single time. So it proves that tears weigh more than fat, in my opinion. And so the more tears they had, the more weight they lost. So over how many weeks were you really shooting that show? So 10 weeks the first season. Right. And the end of the first week, it was a nine-day week the first week. I decided to weigh them in the night before because Jeff Gassman was going to be at the first weigh-in. Mm -hmm. And if they all lost one pound, I was toast. Yeah. I wanted to know in advance. So I had a scale made where only I could see the readout. <laughs> and again, I'll never forget his name. Gary walked into the room, first contestant, stepped on the scale, and it said, like, I think it said 14 pounds. Wow. 
And I said, could you get off the scale? He's like, yeah, yeah. I go, could you get back on? I weighed every single person in three times. No contestant lost under 10 pounds Wow. in that time period. And I sent a car for Jeff Gaspin to make sure he wouldn't miss one minute of that weigh-in. And the rest is, you know, kind of, I guess you could say is history. But the reality is no science, everyone was being a scientist. No scientist was working on the emotional part. And in the end, it turns out, and it was a new paradigm for weight loss, that the emotional part of losing weight is 90% of the game. Sure. If you can beat that, find out why in the first place. You have a picture of a kid. Uh, lots of kids' parents get divorced, and they're fine. Some people don't have the toolkit. And so you can see a picture the year before their parents were divorced. They look like us. The year after, they're 30 pounds overweight mm. as an 11-year-old. And so for them, they couldn't emotionally digest what happened. Right. So they turned to food. And so you really have to unpack the moment of what happened, not say, oh, well, all your other friends got divorced and they're not fat. Why are you fat? You know, you can't do that. You have to hold their baggage for them and help them unpack it. And then pretty much you can just get out of the way. How many countries were you in? Hundred, I think there's 192 markets. Still uh, And running? I think we were in 180 something. And, and why isn't that show still on the air? It seems like it's a show that should never go off. Yeah, uh, because times have changed. And I, I call it the, the Lizzo era. <laughs> you know, which is she's happy oh and dancing God. on stage and just be comfortable with who you are. And there is something poetic and beautiful about that. But no longer does someone want to be told how they should look or what they should look like or be labeled in any way. Now, I would say that it's a matter of health. It's a matter of feeling good in your skin. It's a matter of living a long, healthy life. But what do you think of the people life? like Lizzo, who I admire like crazy? She's amazing awesome. Flute player. I mean, she's spectacular. Everything the talent go. that oh, she it's has. insane. Is... She's happy with the way she looks. Okay. I would argue, and I don't know her, yeah. but I would argue that there are plenty of moments where she's not. And it's uncomfortable. I'm in a seat right now that arms are, are almost to my waist. Mm -hmm. And I weigh 147 pounds. So you have to think if she, if you were interviewing her right now and she came in here, she would need to ask for a different chair mm -hmm. because she couldn't be in this chair. When you go to a restaurant, you can't be in a booth. You have to be on a chair outside the booth. Mm. You know what I mean? There are moments of accountability, whether you like it or not, that happen in the, and it's uncomfortable. Well, health-wise too. I mean, when Adele lost all the weight, people got upset almost that she'd lost the weight, you know, right. uh, which I find uh, strange. Uh, and then there are the yo-yo people who gain weight, lose weight, gain weight, lose yeah. weight, which obviously is not good it's, for you as look, well. It's so hard. Being overweight is hard. I think it's hard mentally. It's hard physically. And it only gets worse. And Tell it, me. Yeah. And so I, I admire uh, the people who are happy in their own skin. And I love it. But I also want them to live a long time and live comfortably and happy and be able to walk up a flight of stairs. And Sure, at 20-something years old, she can dance on the stage and she can do everything. But- what happens when she's 40, 45, 50, 55 at that point? And you need to deal with that now, yeah. not later. But everybody should live the life that they want to live. And I think the difference is a show called Biggest Loser, you know, back in the day was a pun, mm. is not looked at that way now. We're, mm. we're in different times mm. and we need to allow people the space and the comfort to meet them where they are. And I completely understand that and recognize it. Ever since I've known you, you've been into physical fitness. Yeah. You always were running on the beach or doing some kind of athletic thing. Yeah. Um, you have a twin sister. I do. Tell me about your relationship because um, is she in the same sort of situation? She's a doctor, well-educated. pediatrician. And, and I, I would say, you know, she, 
by LA standards, sure, she's not, you know, fit and perfect. Um, by South Jersey standards, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, it's probably different. But more importantly, how did she always feel comfortable in her skin? Mm. Or did she always feel like she was at her best? And, and I would say not all the time. And so it's very difficult to have a brother who invented weight loss in primetime television yep. and has always been thin, fit, and healthy. Yep. Uh, and you hate working out or you don't like how it feels or, right, it's not your natural place to go. So, yeah, I think her relationship with food and working out was very different than mine. And I don't, I can't, I couldn't tell you why. You know, my, my parents uh, definitely struggled with their weight. Um, and um, Do you discuss this with her? Uh, I have two sisters and I've discussed it. I've discussed it with both of them. And I know a little bit of the yo-yo situation when, when, when you've lost the weight, you know, I feel so good and I can do so much. And then slowly it comes back on over winter mm -hmm. as everybody has their winter gear yep. back East that they protect. And yeah, I hate it here and I don't want to be here. And then the first day of spring is sprung. And all of a sudden you're like, I love this place. And then you start getting in shape again. And it's a vicious cycle. And the older you get, the more difficult it becomes. Oh, yeah. And that's why when I go back to Lizzo, I'm like, yeah, it's great now. Like the anthem of her life is beautiful. Just be happy with who you are. Be comfortable with where you're at. The where I get nervous is it makes people feel like it's okay to pack on the pounds or eat the fries or do the, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or eat the thousand calorie, you know, Starbucks drink or whatever that is, which we know is not the healthiest choice of all, but everybody should live the life that they want to live that they're comfortable with. I'm, I do my thing and everyone else can do theirs. I've never sat at a dinner and be like, are you really going to order that? Like I, I could care less. You know, I do these five mile walks and uh, I often go by your house and I go up to uh, the hotel up there. But my biggest problem is there's that little restaurant and I go down and I get a frappuccino and all the walking that I've just done. Pierre Lafont. I, I destroy it <laughs> in 10 minutes because yeah. it's so freaking good. And of course, when they say, do you want whipped cream? I go, well, why wouldn't you? Whipped cream? <laughs> I, I don't have that gene. I, there's really? something There's something about getting up in the dark and being the only one out there that makes me feel like I've already won up to everybody before they're even out of bed. Really? And for people who want to lose weight, like all the shows we did, I never tapped someone on the shoulder and said, boy, you're fat, you should lose weight. They came to us. Yeah. They wanted to make a change in their life. And for the people that want to make a change in their life, I say, start off making one good decision when only one eye is open. Because it's much harder to ruin that during the day because you're like, I mean, I just did a thousand calorie you know, workout, 500 calorie workout, and I ate a healthy breakfast. Do I really want to ruin this Yeah, ruin it. You know, so when you start making good decisions in the morning, it's harder to make bad decisions. If you start with a bad decision, it's very easy to go, ah, I'll just start tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. And then- That's everybody's way out. This is something uh, that nobody does anymore. Uh, bet on yourself. I don't understand people who don't trust their own instincts and- and have no plan. You know, there used to be a sign over my shop class, uh, plan your work and work your plan. Uh, if you don't bet on yourself, what's the point? Yeah, well, um, I, I, social media, the internet, information, there's, always, there's a good side and a bad side to everything. Yeah. I think that has frozen a lot of people with anxiety. And look, when I was playing basketball as a, a, a short, you know, Jewish white kid <laughs> in my neighborhood, I was the best in my neighborhood. Well, I couldn't go online and say best 10-year-old basketball player, hit enter, and see talent from around the country that would blow your mind. Yep. I, I, I thought I was the best. I was going to the NBA. Yep. 
And part of having that dream and that fantasy and working it is healthy. The unhealthy part is seeing a 10-year-old who can do things that there's, and so you just stop. I, I'm just going to stop. I can't do that. So I just stop. It's always sad to me. And so I think a lot of what happens now is it's very easy to compare yourself to the best at all times. Mm. You don't need to be the best to be successful in life. You don't have to be the top number one. It's great if you can get there, but you don't have to be to be successful, to be happy, to be loved. You know what I mean? And so I think a lot of development uh, stops too early and there's this failure to launch because you're so frozen with fear. You and I believe the same thing, and that is uh, passion. You can't teach passion to anybody. And I always feel sad about the people who get up every day and hate their job. Uh, I I don't know what I would do. I always say I've never worked a day in my life. I've had good days and bad days, but I've I've never had a job. I've gone and played television, and there have been some shows that I love doing and some I didn't like doing half as much when I was doing stand-up. That was one thing. But I never took a job outside of the television industry. I've always worked in the entertainment world. And I don't, you know, nothing wrong with working at Macy's or being a server or whatever. I just never wanted to do that. And so the only thing, I, at one point, I, I, was, I started off as a professional magician. So I was working in the Magic Castle when I first came out here. That's how I made a living. But I got down financially at one point and I became a disc jockey at the Hungry Tiger restaurant in Marina Del Rey. <laughs> and I hated every minute of it. But at least I felt, well, it's still show business. I'm, I'm playing records and I'm, I'm entertaining. That's about as low as I ever got. But I've been very fortunate as you. I don't think you've taken a, a job outside the industry. No, never. Never did, right? Nope. How did we manage to make that happen is the question. Well, for me, it was desperation. <laughs> it was like, I don't want to do anything else. So I got to figure this out. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't think I knew I was going to be a business guy you know i think my real talent was being bilingual and by that i mean like i don't speak any other languages but is i a creative person who only is creative would get so angry at the money guy but i just want to and the money guy all he hears is money it's going to cost it's going to cost and he just goes no so i think what i was great at was being able to say hey i think what she's saying is she wants to is there any way you could find something that would allow us and then Bark, bark, bark. And I'd say, I think what he might be saying is, hey, you already spent a bunch of money on something else. Is there any way we could? And then I would walk away and everything would be fine. And so I think I didn't know when I was young, like that was going to be part of my talent. But in a lot of ways, markets like hosting, right? Right. When you're hosting something, there's multiple people. You got to get everyone to kind of see eye to eye. And so a lot of business in a way is the same thing. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you got some support from your parents when you walked into a room and they were giving you support. But I also know a story where that wasn't necessarily the case. Uh, and, you know, I've had a strained relationship with my parents. They wanted me to go in the insurance business with my father. And every time I said, you know, first I was going to be a professional magician, oh, don't do that. You know, that's just a hobby. And they never believed, they never supported me in anything I wanted to do. So, you're running a company. You must have a 1,000 employees. You have a warehouse the size of several football fields. And you're walking your dad through the whole place. And yeah. I know you're looking for that pat on the back, which you probably hadn't gotten a whole bunch. He didn't give it to you. What did he say to you? He said, he said nothing. I, I think my dad thought I was a better basketball player because in the backyard he'd push me down while playing in a physical kind of way to make me tougher. Mm. And I think that he feels in business why I was successful is because he taught me to be tougher. 
What he doesn't understand is that me watching his work ethic and how hard he worked and getting up on Saturdays early before his kids got up to go work at the office so that when his kids got up, he could come back and do things with him made way more of a lasting impact on me Mm. than the tough treatment of that era, of what dads were like in that era. So him not saying, you know, again, I I started the company on my front porch and it's 45,000 square foot building with hundreds of people, you know, going through it at where I am. If that happens to my kid and that door finally closed in his office, I'm going to be jumping up and down doing backflips. Like this is amazing. And I don't think he was able to get there. Was he jealous? I think, uh, I'm, uh, it's hard to know. I know as a parent, I would do anything for my kids to eclipse success and success to me is happiness. Mm -hmm. If they're happy with what they're doing, then no one's going to be happier than me for them. You know, the label of what success means is different for everybody. And yeah, it's easy to say when you're comfortable and you're never going to have to worry about money and all of that, that comes along with success. But there are more people I know that are wealthier than we could ever be that are miserable. Oh yeah. And there are more people I know that can run a 7.0 on a treadmill and are 145 pounds and are miserable. So just because you're overweight doesn't mean you're unhappy. And just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're happy. Yep. And so happiness comes from within. So I think he struggles with finding his happiness and where that is. And you know, hurt people hurt people. (laughs) Yeah. And in the end. all they know. Right. And in the end, I feel like that's what that's about. You had rules that you were able to pull off because it was your company, um, and I always admired you for this. You, <laughs> game shows were always shot on weekends, so I always worked Saturdays and Sundays. Yeah, you had a rule in your company: never work Saturdays. Ne- never work the weekends. Tell me and in about fact, that. When you're shooting a reality show, you never have a day off of shooting because you want to continue yeah. the drama that's going on. Yep. So imagine we stop Friday; they had the weekend off, and then come back. Networks would be like, "You, you can't do that." Like all the good stuff's going to happen on the weekend. I yeah. said, no, all the good stuff happens when the cameras go on. Right, exactly. When the cameras are off, they, they're they laying nothing in the happened. sun getting a tan. Yeah. Like not, nothing's going to happen. And they fought me on it a lot. I said, listen, I'm not your guy if, that, if that's what you want. For me, everybody needs to go home and get refueled. And refueled to me is spending time with people that you love. So I coached every sport my kid ever played. I hung out on the weekends. It was all about them and my wife. And that was the balance that I needed to be successful in my life. You never did dinner meetings either, did you? I I did one dinner meeting in my entire career and it did not go well. (laughs) And I would tell people, if you want, I I don't do dinner. Dinner is for family. I used to tell my agent all the time, we got to go to dinner. I'd say, listen, put my name down on that Wednesday from 6 to 9 p.m. And here's what I want you to do. Go home and have dinner with your family. And I'm going to go home and have dinner with my family. And you can tell people that we had dinner together, <laughs> but you're going to be so much better off for going home and doing that than you are for you and I to, to make sure that my French fries are hot when we go to dinner. It just, none of that ever interested me. I would tell people, I'm at Uncle Bill's Pancake House in Manhattan Beach, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You can meet me there for breakfast. I, 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 sometimes I have two breakfasts, sit there and, and do meetings, but that's it. Once I drop my kids off at school, then it's work time. But think about it. I was not in Hollywood. I was in Manhattan Beach. Yeah. I My office was in Manhattan Beach. My studio was in Manhattan Beach. So it was a three-mile radius, house, kids' school, because I coached sports, so I could coach them, and the studio. And back then, you couldn't watch things on your computer. You had to have DVDs. You yep. had to be in the bay. So 
I would go home for dinner. I'd books, bath, bed, put in a bed, and I'd drive two miles back to my office. And you'd watch watch cuts, cuts. and then I, and then I would come home. I'd coach really? sports. I'd go back to the office, and that was my um, that was my schedule. So you're not a really social guy. Zero. I am not social at all. You, if you ask my wife, like I could just be with her 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of my life, and be completely fine. Yeah, I don't really like going out. I definitely don't like going out in groups of people. I cannot go out and talk about mortgage rates or <laughs> baseball. I, I just can't do it. I can't do it. I have no interest in it. I heard something about you you don't understand people like who want to go take a ski trip together or a golf trip together or something like that. You it's know- so California that multiple families go on vacation together. Well, why would I want to do that? I want to go on vacation with my family. Yeah, I, I'm not a big... Like, uh, one time we went out with another couple... Alice and I, since we were young, always got up early, and we were up in Napa. And these people didn't get up till noon. And by the time they had a late breakfast ring, it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I said to Alice, I never want to go on vacation. And we never have. Been married almost 50 years. I just, I'm not a fan of going out with other people because yeah. they don't want to live the life. Well, East Coast, where I, where I grew up, like, you go on a vacation. You may, if you're lucky, you had maybe one or two vacations a year. Yeah. And you, you went with your family, and that was it. It wasn't even a, a concept. I mean, there are five, six, seven, eight families at a time that go skiing in California or go to Hawaii or go to an island together. So and let's the parents just say, party at night and the kids, I, I'm not in. I'm not uh, in let's just say that I stopped talking about playing golf and I finally do play golf. Yeah. Uh, and you and Dennis play golf all the time. We do. Uh, and Dennis says, uh, we're going to go to the U.S. Open in uh, you know Orlando, Florida, and we're going to play uh, X amount of rounds. Or we're going to Hawaii. Would would you do that? I would. <laughs> and and here's why. <laughs> Tell me why. My kids are grown. They're out of the house. Yeah. I'm a, a new empty nester, and I literally felt like they were going to be picking up pieces of me for years. Really. I was I was so scared that when my kids left, that I you would, I would not have a purpose. Really. I would. And it turns out, it's a little easier than I thought, because. On all these vacations we took, on all these years, nobody ever asked me what I wanted to do, right? Uh, it was always right. what the, but yeah. it never bothered me. Right. I never thought, oh, no That's one ever asked me. as a parent, though. But I went on my first, 25th wedding anniversary, a month after my second kid left for college. Mm. I was a month into being an empty nester. And we got to Italy, and my wife turns, she says, what do you want to do? I go, I don't know, nobody's ever asked me. And I thought, this is amazing. It's like living a second life. And so from that standpoint, now, if you and Dennis said, let's go to the U.S. Open, <laughs> I'd be like, yeah. Let's do it. But I'd probably have to take my wife. <laughs> no, no. You can't go. I, I, don't, I don't think I would So was this the last trip where you uh, thought you were going to go to the Ferrari factory and you your car fell down? Is that the, the, the yeah. 25th? Yeah. Oh, man. Car broke down and we, we didn't end up going. But all those uh, stories of you know when you go somewhere and something happens – they're all part of the trip. They're part of the journey. They're part of like the yep. fun of it all. And so, yeah, we, you know, my wife and I agreed when we had kids to never go away on an airplane without them until they went to college. Same way. We never did. So this is the first trip we have ever taken alone. And we laughed for 14 straight days. Yep. It was like the greatest rediscovery of like, oh my God, this second chapter of our lives is going to be amazing. Oh yeah. Because we, we actually really like each other. You you know, you're lucky. I'm the same way. You're half, been married half as long as I have. It flies by, okay? Um, it's just frightening that we're, first of all, we're lucky that we found somebody that we, you know, were able to stay compatible with. Because yep. people change, you know? Yep. You're not the same person you were when you got married and, and neither is she. What's your, what's your wife's name? Christine. Christine. And, and, uh, Luckily, you changed in a positive way. Tell yeah. me about your wife. 
yeah, she's an incredible person. I think I was, you know, on a successful show at the time. We met, we were 24 years old. So Funhouse, you know, was on the air. And I was like, how'd the, you meet? I was the guy. I sold a show to a guy um, at Disney um, who um, you actually probably know. So I'll get to his name in a second. Um, and uh, we took him to a, 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 my partner's house for a barbecue. So it was my partner and his wife. And this Disney executive and his uh, girlfriend and me and a girl. And I walked in and the girl he was with was literally the most spectacular looking woman I've ever seen in my life. So I pulled him aside. And I said, hey, um, is, that, is that really your girlfriend? And he said, no, 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 we're just friends. He had an English accent. No, love, love. We're just, we're just friends. So I tried to talk her up all night. East Coast, New York girl. You know, uh, a physical therapist, you know, studying like in graduate school, drop dead beautiful, smart. And I, and she won't give me the time of day. So barbecue's over. I go home. I'm literally having dreams about her. Like, and this never happened to me before. I'm like hearing her voice. And so a couple of weeks later I call him and I said, Hey, is it okay if, um, you give me her number if you're really just friends? And he called her and she said, yes. And I took her number and I called her and I married her. And um, I literally, on my first date, I called my partner at midnight and I woke him up and I said, I'm marrying this girl. He's like, you're not marrying this. What are you talking about? And, uh, and that was it. It was Here's, just a moment. You and me. So I'm a page at CBS and I was scared to death of girls, scared to death of them. And it's the uh, Mary Tyler Moore show. Episode's called Angels in the Snow. And in the line is this woman that I'm going, oh my God. I, I've never seen anything that. Before. How old are you now? Twenty to twenty years old. Twenty years old. And I'm I'm trying to figure out how to get up enough nerve to talk to this girl. So we seat the the people, and I'm staring at her. And uh, I said, Steve, Steve Weinberg, guy I was a page with. I said, see that woman up there? He goes, yeah. I said, I'm going to marry that girl. He says, you're out of your mind. She's with my friend, uh, and they're going to get married. I said, not a chance in hell. So he says, okay. So uh, halfway through the show, she comes over and asks me where the bathroom is. And I said, what's it, what's it worth to you? I said to her. She sort of <laughs> s smiled and laughed. Comes back. At the end of the show, we go downstage because we're pages and we can, and he was taking his friend who thought he was in show business but wasn't. And, and Alice is there. And I can tell Alice is having the worst time of her life. She's looking around, whatever. And when this guy and Alice leave, I said to my friend Steve, when she breaks up with him, call me. And he goes, you're not. She's not breaking up. I said, trust me. The next week he calls me, he goes, oh my God, I just found out that Alice broke up with this guy. I said, give me your number. He gave me your number. I called her. We, Steve and I, he got a date. We double dated. I wanted to ask her that night, okay? Oh my God, it's like the same. The same story. <clears throat> I waited a month and asked her out. I asked her to marry me. She said, you're crazy, you don't a even month? know me. A month? A month. I said, uh, let's get married. She says, you're crazy, you don't even know me, but ask me again. I asked her a week later. She said yes, and we've been married almost 49 years. Hold on a second. You got married knowing her less than a year? Yeah, uh, nine months. Wow. Nine months. Yeah. Wow. That's From the time I met her. That is crazy. Yeah. You know, I've enjoyed uh, the roller coaster, the good moments <laughs> and the bad moments. But what I love is now that we're older and we can sit and have Chinese food and yep. reminisce about all those things, it's really nice. You can't replace history. No, you can't. And you and I have a history together. And so it takes 35 years to replace that with somebody else. I uh, thank you for that. And I guess we should thank Dennis because he kind of put us uh, back together, you know. And uh, 
Who would have thought that you and I'd be neighbors, uh, you know, all these years yep. later? And we've had some great success. I admire the hell out of you uh, for so many different reasons. And uh, just keep it going, man. Uh, stay healthy. Thanks. Yeah, it's good seeing you. Mark Summers Unwraps, back with more next week. Thanks for listening. Mark Summers Unwraps is a production of Believe Limited, created by me, Mark Summers, and Jessica Richmond. Produced by Keith Corneluk and Jessica Richmond. Executive produced by Patrick James Lynch and Ryan Geelan. Post-production support from Joshua Sterling Bragg and Believe Limited. Don't forget to subscribe or follow the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you really love it, why don't you leave us a rating and a review? Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Mark Summers Unwraps.